0: This episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast is sponsored by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, IBM. Inward Bound Mindfulness Education believes young people deserve our best attention and support. And in order to create that support, they provide in depth mindfulness programs for teens and young adults, helping them learn awareness, compassion, and concentration practices on retreats and during summer courses. And they have everything online for summer of 2020. IBME's mindfulness practices help with deep listening skills, self-awareness, and communication, essential competencies for success in all areas of life. And now they've expanded their offerings for adults, including a summer course for parents. You can find out about this and more at ibme.com, Com. When you get there on the main page, you'll see a spot where you can enter your email address. Do that so you stay updated on programs and events and find out about new co- course offerings then if you look just above that a little to the right there is a beautiful nature photo and it says new courses and offerings new online courses and offerings click that picture and it'll take you straight to what they have so you can see what's happening to help you and your teen this summer welcome to mighty parenting the podcast with real raw, relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm your host, Sandy Fowler. I am a stress relief coach, speaker, a certified divine sleep guide, as well as your mighty parenting podcast host. And I love sharing all these great guests with you. If you are finding value in the shows, then I appreciate it if you share it with someone you know. You can tell them about the podcast. You can share individual episodes right from your podcast player. Or from MightyParenting.com. When you go there and you hit Mighty Parenting Podcast, it functions like a blog. Each episode has its own page. So you can actually just send that URL to somebody who might not be as podcast savvy as you are. So thank you for letting other parents know that's how we get this information out to families that need it. Today, we're getting into food allergies, but maybe not the way that you're used to getting information about food allergies. We're not talking about the nitty-gritty of managing food, but what we're going to look at is the impact that uh, these allergies and this lifestyle can have on your child and your family, looking at the emotional impact, the psychosocial impact. I know that it's, it's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. During my years of podcasting, I've met a few food allergy advocates, and in chatting with them or interviewing them, I know I have felt overwhelmed just thinking about what it would take to manage that lifestyle. So When Tamara Hubbard reached out to me offering to discuss the emotional impact of food allergies, I jumped at the opportunity. Tamara is a licensed clinical professional counselor focused on providing support to women, those experiencing life transitions, and especially those needing guidance on navigating the psychosocial impacts of life with food allergies. So Tamara, welcome to Mighty Parenting.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Obviously, living with food allergies requires a lifestyle adjustment, and depending on the severity and the number of people in your family who have them, it's it's just going to take a lot of work, a lot of adjustment, and a lot of vigilance over our food. So I get that logistical side, but what else does living with food allergies mean for our families?
1: Oh, gosh, a whole host of things. And, you know, I think there's so much focus on the day to day management the safety protocols, um, carrying epinephrine auto injectors, understanding the medical side of food allergies, which is all necessary and important that I think that sometimes the focus on the emotional and social impacts kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Um, You know, this is any kind of chronic condition or chronic medical condition that people are dealing with is typically a family disease. So while the child in this case might have the food allergy or food allergies, the parents are dealing with it, the siblings are dealing with it, extended family members. So you could be, you know, navigating through a whole host of emotions, um, changes to, you know, social outings, family gatherings, um, change in routine for going out to eat lunch or dinner it does impact our our lives in a whole bunch of different ways that we might not always think about and and that's true too especially depending on when the diagnosis is made if it's made when the child is a baby or an infant it might change things a little bit less than if the diagnosis is made in adolescence or even you know uh, elementary school years
0: well and that's an interesting point too so If we're, you know, right now we're talking uh, to families who have teens, tweens, Mm 20-somethings. And so, of course, there are a variety of issues that can come up. But let's just, let's take, I guess, let's take the idea of a teenager who Mm -hmm. was diagnosed younger. Mm -hmm. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but wouldn't that be more common than having someone yeah. diagnosed in their teen years.
1: Yeah, that tends to be more common the diagnosis as a child or an infant. Although, with that being said, I will say that um, adult onset allergies, food allergies, are becoming more and more common now, um, really? as well as yeah, as well as not outgrowing a food allergy. Um, so while a lot, you hear mostly about kids and and infants being diagnosed, it is possible for someone to grow into a food allergy or add an additional food allergy, even through the adult years.
0: Well, and I hadn't really thought about it before. I do a lot of reading and Mm -hmm. (laughs) my family will tell you experimenting with various (laughs) changes in, in diet to help with general wellness or with health issues that the family's having. And There is a lot of discussion there about food sensitivities. And so I guess that's kind of part of that spectrum is that people are having more and more food sensitivities. I know I just heard about someone talking about how hard it is to have a potato allergy now because of the gluten-free movement. That so many things now have potato and rice in them that didn't in the past.
1: Well, so that's an interesting topic. And that's a question that always seems to come up, Um, you know, the whole food intolerance and sensitivity versus food allergy. And actually, I just spoke with local clinicians, behavioral health clinicians in my area. I gave a presentation on Friday, and I made sure to put that into my presentation because that question always comes up. Are they on the same spectrum? Are they the same thing? Can those terms be interchangeably used? Um, Actually, a food intolerance and a food allergy are very different without getting too technical um, because I'm not a doctor and also because I don't want to bore everybody. um, The basics are is that a food allergy reaction is immune based. So that's a reaction where the body actually sees a food as something that's harmful and the immune system goes into action to keep it safe and then Additional, you know, from that point on is is when you'll see the reactions happening in the GI system, the respiratory, um, you know, skin hives, all that kind of stuff. Whereas a food intolerance is not immune-based. So that's something that happens in the digestive system. And that basically is the body lacks the enzyme to break down whatever food it is that it's ingested. So you might have the GI issues, you might feel really awful. I don't wanna downplay what it's like to live with a food intolerance because it can feel completely awful, but they're not gonna end up with life-threatening reactions like a food allergy reaction could be.
0: So that was, I guess, one thing I was wondering because, being a parent of girls who went off to college and started bringing people home with them i suddenly also had an influx of kids with food allergies and that i am not an expert in food allergies i am incredibly grateful that is not something that my immediate or extended family has had to deal with sure and so i have these kids coming into my house and those are the questions i would ask is like okay how severe is right. this like how vigilant do i need to be obviously i'm not going to intentionally feed them something that i know has the substance but like do i need to scrub down my entire kitchen before they come you know one of my girls in preschool had a friend whose brother had a peanut allergy or i think it was general nut allergy where it wasn't a, was a very severe anaphylactic reaction Therefore, when even though she didn't have the allergy, when she came to our house, we had to behave as if she did. So, you know, things like I opened a new jar of jelly because we probably stuck that knife in the peanut butter jar before it went in the jelly jar and things like that.
1: Absolutely. When you don't live with an allergy, you're not always as aware about, of those things, nor would you you know, need to be necessarily unless there was someone you know that you were working around. And, you know, you mentioned that sometimes you want to ask questions to find out just how severe a food allergy is. That's one of the tough things that can lead to a lot of anxiety, especially for parents and caregivers. Um, You don't 100% really know because there's a lot of factors that go into what kind of a reaction someone with a food allergy will have each time. Um, How much was ingested? Method of ingestion? Was it eaten? Was it something that they inhaled? Um, You know, not all allergens are going to be aerosolized, but some can be. Um, Was it just contact? What time of year do they have other seasonal allergies. So there's a, you know, an allergic load going on in the body already. Um, So there's a lot of factors that go into um, Whether somebody's reaction is going to be, I hate to say mild versus more severe and anaphylactic. So, you know, it's kind of a hard question to answer for people to say, well, I only have a mild allergy or You know, I have a severe anaphylactic allergy because they really can only base it on what kind of reaction they've had in the past, but that doesn't predict what kind of reaction they might have in the future. So it really, that tends to be a source of anxiety for a lot of families or parents.
0: Interesting. Okay. So before we get into that, because there's two roads I have here. One is for the rest of us who are not necessarily, you know, it's not our family member, but we are socially part of. World, and you know, we may have family members or close friends or these acquaintances, or our kids are bringing people home who have food allergies. What can we do or not do to make this a more comfortable, more um, emotionally friendly interaction when we're inviting someone into our home? has a food allergy? Like you said, me just asking that question can be the source of stress for a parent or, or the child.
1: Sure, sure. Well, I'm going to be a total therapist and put a reframe on this. Okay. <laughs> um, because I think actually the fact that you even ask those questions um, is incredibly helpful and compassionate. And so what I encourage families and individuals who are not food allergic and want to support those that are, um, is to do just what you do, open communication, asking questions. Um, Nine times out of 10, the food allergic individual or the parents and caregivers love to be asked that because that means that the person asking cares, and is compassionate and wants to help be part of the solution rather than saying, I don't care. Um, So nine times out of 10 on on top of that, that food allergic individual or family member or caregiver will have ideas of what foods are safe. Um, They'll tell you, well, don't worry, I'll just bring something for myself. I completely am okay with that. They'll tell you what brands of foods are safe for whatever you're making. Um, They usually have suggestions of which they can feel it's still included in whatever's happening at the gathering. So open communication, just acting as if you, you know, you wanna be part of the solution. What can I do to help? Um, what would make you more comfortable? I think really is approaching it appropriately.
0: Okay, so what can I do to help? What would make you more comfortable?
1: Right, what would make you more comfortable? What suggestions do you have? Um, Would you like to bring your own food? Would you like me to prepare it differently? You know, please, please educate me, please guide me um, so that I can make your time here comfortable and safe.
0: Well, that's kind of interesting because one of the friends that my daughter brought home, um, he was gonna be staying for, I think it was a week. And so what oh, I boy. did well so what we did is we actually we cleared out a kitchen cupboard and said, this is your cupboard. And then I yeah. gave my daughter, you know, I did some shopping and things, but then I gave my daughter my credit card and I said, you guys go to the store. Like here's what I'm making for dinners. You guys go to the store and get some, you know, breakfast and lunch type foods. You know what we keep in the house. Let him pick out things that he can eat. And then, you know, we put his food in his cupboard and like in the fridge, you know, if there was stuff in there that needed to be different, we marked that because like you said, there are certain brands that are either just preferable to eat as well as brands that can be better than others. So, so that is, that's a, a social piece of this, right? Is that when you have food allergies, do families get isolated? Is that one of the problems that comes up?
1: well they can do so the whole goal with managing a food allergy and part what part of what i work on with um, i tend to work with a lot of caregivers uh, moms in particular Um, so whether it's the parents caregivers or the food allergic individual themselves the goal is really to have them learn how to navigate life with preparedness and cautiousness but not excessively leading it with fear and avoidance so striking that balance between you know is this a situation that I need to avoid because it's not safe or are there things that I can do to accommodate or change things so that I can attend that, that, you know, party or that get together in a safe manner. Um, And that's where the anxiety piece can come in and sort of create what you said like is isolation. Um, If, if a family or an individual experiences a lack of support from other family members or friends. Um, They might also tend to not wanna go to those gatherings and so might feel isolated. Um, If they don't know how to appropriately navigate safely without excessive fear, maybe they haven't gotten enough education from their board certified allergist or they don't have the correct support that they need from the community or educational resources. Um, So they're living in excessive fear because the reality is, is navigating life with a life-threatening allergy there's going to be anxiety and so i encourage people to understand that you know there's going to be a relationship with anxiety but you get to help determine what that relationship is like and how much of it is healthy and appropriate versus excessive and over overly Um, so while the anxiety is is totally rational it's not irrational Um, it can be excessive and that can lead to isolation
0: can you expand on that a little bit
1: Absolutely. So, you know, isolation um, when I'm working with a client, I tend to find that isolation tends to come from either fear. So the fear of, you know, what will happen in a given situation or not understanding how to safely navigate a situation or it comes from partially a lack of support, um, lack of support from others helping to make that scenario one that is inclusive or safe for that family or individual.
0: Okay. And that makes a lot of sense. And that fits with things that I've heard other parents struggle with. Now, most of the parents I've had extended conversations with, um, their kids were younger. So what I'm wondering is, as our kids get older as they move into middle school and into high school, and then they're gonna go off to college. This is a very scary thing, like you said, for parents. And and they've and depending especially on whether, like you said, whether it's an airborne allergy or a contact allergy, you know, it can be terribly, terribly frightening because literally yeah. your child's life is at risk. And we also know that from all of our general parenting advice, all of our experts have told us over and over that the more we helicopter, the more we do for our kids, the less well-off they're going to be emotionally. And so we do, we know we need to hand over the reins to them and even in terms of these food allergies. So do you have um, some suggestions, both logistical for parents, but also, you know, as a parent, to deal how do you deal with that fear as you're handing the reins over to your child to give them more control over their decisions and their life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you know, these are tough years to be navigating in general. And then you add this layer of food allergy on it and it's even tougher. Um, so, you know, what I what I recommend and, and remind parents are that, you know, kindergartners don't go to college the next year. <laughs> um, and the same, they have many years to prepare for college, by which time you're ready and they're ready, hopefully. Um, so it's really similar when you're thinking about preparation to help your teen manage their own food allergy appropriately so that they can become an independent uh, food allergic individual. Um, it happens over years, or that's the goal, is to happen over years. So you're going to constantly build. Each year or each stage of development with additional skills and additional knowledge that's going to help them navigate that new developmental stage. Um, So I think it can be overwhelming when parents you know, let's say they receive a diagnosis and their child is two, three, four, and they start to project into the future and think, oh my gosh, they have to go to prom with an allergy, they have to go to college with an allergy, they have to, you know, all of these things in the future. Number one, that's a little too future focused because you wanna navigate what you've got right in front of you or in the near future. Um, but also going back to that, you know, step in the scaffolding, they are going to learn those skills if you work with them at each stage. So that's what I try to remind parents is that, you know, you're not just going to start at 11 going, okay, you have a food allergy. Let's learn all about it. You're going to be teaching them from the time they're little and diagnosed. But it's important with that being said that you recognize where you need to let go of the reins more because like you said, the adolescent years and young adult years are the times where they're going to have to learn how to navigate things, life in general, and their food allergy on their own. So um, there is a psychologist called Galinsky. I, I'm blinking on her first name right now, but um, Galinsky's six stages of parenting. And it's um, from all of her research, she was able to sort of come up with six stages of parenting. And I know we often talk about in this field, stages of development for, for kids and adolescents. So this is a slightly different look at it. Um, this is looking at what the parent's role are at, what, their, what the parent's role is for each stage of development that the child is going through. Um, and so, for instance, if you're thinking about, um, you know, the hallmark of the adolescence stage right there in the thick of it, the parents' tasks in general are to, you know, allow for shared decision making, shared power, in how to navigate new situations with their teen. For the food allergic parent, that's going to look like transitioning more responsibility to the child and to really be the safety net, but also include them in planning. So you want them to be able to make mistakes and fail, which means they have to be able to try. If okay, I die. have to stop you right there. Yeah.
0: Because of that. I'm sitting here and I'm listening. I'm going, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as soon as you said, make mistakes and fail, and I paired that with, you know, food allergies are life threatening. Yep. Every parenting cell in my body seized up
1: <laughs> yep. in total Absolutely. fear. And it's not Absolutely. even my child.
0: Right. So, yep. That, that's, I'm going to ask you to go down the rabbit hole here and go, how do we do that? How do we let them make decisions and have room for failure when failure is catastrophic?
1: Absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, that is a rabbit hole that sometimes we have to go down and think through. Here's the thing. Food allergic families are so focused on avoidance, avoidance of allergens, avoidance of unsafe situations, that sometimes I think we tend to take avoidance too far and we avoid allowing them to try and manage their allergy. But again, we're not gonna literally let them just go full throttle out there and not have the skills. This is gonna be something you're gonna build on. So you're going to give them a little bit more freedom to go ahead and give it a try. And if they fail, the failure hopefully won't be catastrophic. If it is, the key thing here is all throughout parenting these children, we have to remind them and we have to practice with them if a reaction does happen, what's your emergency action plan? What do you do? You take your epinephrine auto injector out, you have the adult or yourself use it, you call 911, and then you follow the rest of your plan. So as scary as it is, I think sometimes we want to avoid this thought about a reaction could happen. But when we focus too much on a reaction. We don't ever want a reaction to happen, which of course is still the goal of parenting a child with a food allergy. We almost do a disservice to ourselves by not focusing on what we need to do if a reaction happens and teaching our kids what to do if a reaction happens. And okay, practice I feel for... much better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I could calm the cells down, the parenting cells down, because it is a frightening thought. But can you imagine being as a parent being held captive by that fear? And it's a real fear, my son has a peanut allergy, and I have seen him anaphylax. so I know it personally and professionally. Um, it is scary. I don't ever want to see that happen again, and if we can avoid that at all costs, we absolutely will, and that is still the goal, but we have to prepare him and ourselves. If it does happen, we have the skills we need. We have the tools we need, literally, the epinephrine auto injectors to get through it.
0: Well, and the the visual creating in my mind there that my mind was creating as you were talking about that was exactly what we talk about in parenting is giving them the space to to make decisions when we are present
1: right
0: allows room for them to learn either right. they learn yes these are good decisions or no these were not but as yeah. you said we're also there to help them learn how to manage the undesirable potential fallout and and that is important that that is as much if not more important than learning the avoidance and that was something that i'd really not considered
1: yeah yeah because we try so hard not to think about it and we don't want to go there and i and i don't blame parents for feeling that way I don't want to go there in my head either, but if our goals, we have to, that's where we have to step back and say, really, what are our goals as parents here? Are our goals to keep our kids safe? Yes, that is a huge number one goal. But our other goal is to make sure that our kids can keep themselves safe. And that safety means knowing how to navigate their food allergy and the management of it, as well as treat it if there's a reaction. So if we step back and remember what our goals as parents are for our food allergic children, that can help us, and again, it, the piece is going to be managing our own anxiety about all this, so that it doesn't get in the way of us allowing our kids to develop these, you know, through these normal milestones, even with their food allergy, so they can become these independent, uh, you know, young adults who can manage a food allergy. They have to learn skills like, I mean, every child does, but these children in particular are those managing a, a, a chronic medical condition like diabetes or allergies or such. They have to understand their their medical aspects. They have to understand how to contact their doctors, how to self-advocate, how to speak up, how to navigate day-to-day, what to do if an emergency happens. You know, these are things that sometimes we don't really think about as parents when we're helping our kids transition to another phase. But when you have a child who has a food allergy or a chronic condition, especially if it's life-threatening, these are things we have to teach our kids, and it's scary to think about.
0: Well, yes, it is. And you said, so one of the things that parents need to do is manage their own anxiety. Yeah. Do you have suggestions on things that parents can do to manage that anxiety? I, you know, just in my work in stress relief and emotional wellness, I have a couple of thoughts right off the top of my head, but you work specifically in this field.
1: Yeah. So I'm willing to bet that some of our thoughts are going to be similar or the same too. Um, You know, self-care is huge. It's huge for parents in general, um, but particularly for those caregivers and parents that are, um, you know, have a, a child who's managing a medical condition. It's a marathon, not a sprint. This is long term kind of thing. So. You have to make sure that even as the parent of a child managing a food allergy, that you have to take good self-care. And I always stress that it's quality versus quantity here. I know a lot of people say, well, I can't find 10 minutes, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day to focus on, you know, refueling my soul and, you know, self-care for myself. It's not about the time. It's about the, the quality of what you're doing and what, what you're doing for yourself. Taking that hat off for even just a few moments to take a breath and say, okay, you know, let's get centered here. So self-care is important. Um, trying not to get caught up in the anxiety so that it takes you too future focused and you can stay in the here and now. Of course, receiving support that might look like a support network, uh, support group, or receiving counseling if necessary, or if you think it would be beneficial. And then also being able to identify those you know, others, whether it's friends, family members that get it, that are supportive, all of those things can help Parents from burnout. I call it, I really call it exhaustion or burnout. I mean, as parents, we can burn out and be exhausted anyhow, but you're likely to feel more burnt out and exhausted when you're managing a food allergy or chronic condition like this because you're constantly educating others. You're constantly hypervigilant or vigilant, and you're constantly, you know, speaking up and advocating. So it can get exhausting. So self care is going to be my number one recommendation for parents.
0: I love that. And One thing I'd like to add is, which actually ties into your second idea of, you know, staying in the now, not letting your thoughts go to that future place is when you start to feel your anxiety building in that moment, use... An anxiety-reducing tactic. Yeah. There, There are many things that have been shown to work. My favorite one and the one that I find works best not only for me but also for my clients is called 54321.
1: Ah uh, yeah, five, four, three, two, one. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: you're just all we were doing is we're we're getting out of our thoughts by going into our body and our senses. And I just want to share this quickly Absolutely. to to let it's parents wonderful. know. And I'll put this. This will be in the show notes. There'll be more detail. But essentially, what you're going to do is you're going to focus on your five senses. And it doesn't matter if you can remember the exact number and which sense. I just want you to spend some time in your senses. So it's name five things that you can see four things that you can feel or touch, three things that you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And doing that gets you out of those crazy future fearful thoughts that build up and ramp up your anxiety. And physiologically, it slows down your system and helps to keep you out of that fight, flight, and freeze response. And though, like I said, we'll put more on the website about that, but that's a quick tool to use in the moment.
1: I love that one because I'll recommend that even for kids. Because that's something even kids can do. Young kids can do that. They, they know their numbers. They can, you know, they know their senses. And so, like you said, that's something that helps sort of center right then and there too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that one. And I just, I find it really interesting that the number one thing you talked about really, you know, is in taking care of that anxiety is taking care of you and that isn't where we tend to have our focus as parents in general no. and especially when you're dealing with a medical condition and something that you feel like you as a parent are responsible for preventing which is something i think that food allergy parents can get caught up in is that a problem you see for parents
1: it is you know i think part of the issue is that we don't 100% know at this point in in time why, how, where, the specifics of why food allergies are becoming what people seem is more common. Um, We know know more about it, so the numbers are rising. We don't know 100%, the the research is, is happening, but there's no answer specifically as to why people have food allergies. There's a lot of factors and variables. And so, of course, that leaves open the door to guilt, um, figuring it with something maybe I hear a lot of moms saying it's something I ate or didn't eat or something I should have done differently. But the reality of it is, is that we're all doing the best we can using the medical advice we're given at that time, which can change over, over years and research. Um, so really, it isn't something you did. It isn't something you didn't do. And so I think part of, you know, the self-care is also processing through the emotions that people don't think of, like grief and loss when you get a diagnosis like this, um, you know, the loss of normalcy, the the loss of what you thought your child's life would entail, going off to college without navigating it with a food allergy, um, you know, not having to double check before you go to restaurants what's there and is it safe to eat there. So I think part of self-care is... You know not just in the here and now, but also making sure that you're you're aware of and in touch with and processing through these emotions that we might not think are there, such as loss grief trauma and 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 such
0: and the loss is something that will come up over and over again, even if your child was diagnosed as an infant or a toddler, as you've said they're gonna come through they're going to move through life, they're going to reach different milestones and that grief can come up over and over again. So I think that we just need to allow ourselves to feel that, to experience it yeah and yeah. to grieve that loss one more time.
1: So many of us that are what I would deem allergy-informed clinicians um, that work with, in part, at least part of our practices or our our clinical time with those managing food allergies, um, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy tends to be the most commonly researched and most commonly used for chronic medical conditions. Um, In addition to that, I also like acceptance and commitment therapy. And the hallmark of the goals of, of, uh, we call it ACT, just like ACT Act, is um, to really notice your thoughts and your feelings, to name them, and to know what your values and commitments are in life so that you can let those guide you through life and not your anxiety or your fear. And that's not always easy to do. So it takes some practice and some you know general awareness doesn't mean you have to like this diagnosis. It doesn't mean that you have to not have feelings or you have to feel okay about it, but just being able to coexist with the anxiety and coexist with the feelings that you have about it, but not always let it lead you in whatever direction it's going to lead you is really, really powerful. Um, And I'll share with you, if you'd like, um, another technique that might be helpful, at least for parents and parents who are um, in the adolescent phase with those managing food allergies.
0: Yes, please.
1: Okay. So um, you might have heard of it, I'm sure. It's called the IDEAL technique, um, I-D-E-A-L. And it was created by psychologists, I think, in the 80s. And IDEAL stands for the I is identify the problem. D is define your goals. E is explore possible solutions. A is act on it. And L is look back. So when we're led too much by the emotion, sometimes that's the case. We're just feeling very anxious and very scared and fearful and sort of caught up in all of that emotion. And maybe we've tried five, four, three, two, one. 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, we're a little bit calmer. The ideal technique is useful because it can help sort of bring the focus back onto what's the situation we're navigating or wanting to navigate through What's the decision we have to make and what are the skills we need to get through it. And so you can do this with your teenager. You can teach your teenager to do this on their own. um, You can do it yourself on your own, but it's a way to sort of jot all this down and take a look at it. You try something you assess it afterwards and say, did it work well. Should I have tried other solutions? What will I do next time?
0: I love that. And it feels to me like it goes really well hand in hand with something like 54321 because the 54321 yep. is more in the moment dealing with the actual physical feelings, physiology, and emotions. And ideal gives us some, some control and some structure, which also helps us to feel better.
1: Absolutely. It's a framework and it's, it gives your thoughts and your fear something to do. Um, and instead of letting it lead you and guide you, you can deconstruct it and kind of center yourself back on what is it that you're trying to achieve here. So for instance, your teenager um, is leaving his epinephrine injector at home uh, because he's forgetful and he's 15 or 16 and he's focused on going out with his friends. We're going to be pretty anxious about that because that epinephrine epinephrine, epinephrine auto injector is a key part of keeping him safe. And so um, our first instinct might be to lead with anxiety and fear and just yell at him and just get really upset. So he understands, Oh my gosh, this is a major thing. You need to have this with you at all times. What's likely going to happen there. He's going to shut down. He's going to not take anything in. And again, I would ask the parent to say, what is your intended goal? Is your intended goal to show how angry you are? Or is your intended goal to get your, your son to refocus on, oh, hey, we have to make sure that you leave the house with your epinephrine auto-injector so you're safe. So this might be something where you go through the ideal technique and say, look, you know, let's sit down together, let's take 20 minutes, time limited so that you don't get into lecture mode and you don't lose your attention. And you say, this is a problem. It is a problem because you need to be safe. Um, I want your input on it. Let's run through the ideal technique here and let's see if we can come up with some solutions with your input that we, you can try and let's see what happens. If that makes it easier for you to remember or more consistently you can remember it.
0: Okay. So I like that. And, and that also leads me into something else I wanted to ask about. So now we're talking teenagers yeah. and life is changing right and they have more opportunities they have more things going on they have their own social life their own social situations what are some of the common issues that you see come up that are in more of that psychosocial piece the things that cause problems between the parents and the teens the things that pull apart our relationship with them
1: <laughs> sure besides just being a parent and a teen yeah <laughs> besides just being a parent and teen. well because you have all
0: the parent and teen stuff right and now you have again this this medical issue that is going to ramp up everybody's emotions and feelings Absolutely. and you've been yeah. you know you've been dealing with it their whole life they've been dealing with it their whole life and they're gonna be like I'm so done
1: <laughs> right 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 so, okay, so a couple of things that you'll, some of the kind of more obvious things would be, like I said, um, they're forgetting their epinephrine auto-injector, so they're not taking with them the things they need to keep them safe. Um, you're gonna wanna look at and talk about how to navigate dating, kissing. Uh, the proteins can le- stay in the mouth for, you know, a number of hours after somebody's ingested them, so kissing might be dangerous if somebody's eating your allergen. Um, you're going to want to talk about navigating, going out to eat with friends. So how do you navigate? And hopefully at this point, you've practiced this through the years leading up to it, but how can they navigate on their own when you're not hovering and you're not there, sort of right in their space as a safety net, going out to eat with friends? Um, You know, how to navigate speaking up when they need certain things to be accommodated or changed for them. This is especially important if somebody, if, they're, if a teen is an introvert or they're not very good about speaking up for what they need. That's going to be, the self-advocacy piece is huge. That's going to be something you're going to want to work on longer than, you know, starting earlier on than when they're just a teenager. Um, so it's a lot of these navigating the social piece, because obviously when they're teenagers, their main focus is shifting from family to friends and they want to spend more of their time with the the peers and, and doing social things. And so that brings in the whole piece of, well, okay, that's, that's great, but we need to make sure that you know how to navigate all of those scenarios.
0: And as far as the teenagers, we know in general anxiety has risen amongst teens and 20 somethings. I got back from a conference a couple months ago where, We're looking at how um, anxiety has increased. Stress, actually, oddly enough, has not, but anxiety has, which was very interesting. So I'm wondering, though, as you talk to families and as you talk to teens um, who are dealing with food allergy issues, Mm -hmm. what are they actually worried or anxious about?
1: Sure, sure. So it could be a whole host of things. And, 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 and like you said, I like to, and sometimes they don't even know what they're truly worried about. Usually there's, there might be a thought or a couple of thoughts that might fuel that fear but maybe they're not really aware of exactly what those are so we try to kind of deconstruct the fear and figure out what is it that you're feeling uh that's making you so fearful and a lot of times it tends to come down to either a lack of knowledge or information on a specific thing or piece of information that they need to feel more confident or it was you know i've had some teens who they don't remember a reaction, but they were told their story of their their food allergy reaction as a child, and so however that was described to them sort of sticks with them as a theme, and so maybe that fear kind of rears its head again as teenagers, and they start to realize that, okay, now I'm learning to manage it on my own and, you know, feeling insecure about how do I navigate a reaction because I don't remember it happening. Um, I don't remember having to go through this. My parents took care of it, so... A lot of times what I tell parents is to help, and, and, and the teens too, is be aware of where knowledge gaps might be. And so what I mean by that is that a lot of times parents will spend, when the kids are first diagnosed, usually as a child, spend a lot of time educating them on the basics of food allergy. What's your allergen that you're, you know, allergic to? How do we say to somebody I'm allergic to peanuts, tree nuts, milk, you know, all that stuff? Um The basics that they need to know and then they might give a little bit more when they go into elementary school, but sometimes that education kind of stops or tails off because we get busy with life. And we get a little complacent with the fact that, okay, we know the basics about food allergy. We've got this. But again, as you said, we're always moving through new transitions, which give the opportunity for more anxiety to to peak. Um, And so what we need to make sure is to assess does my teen or do I as a teen have the information and the knowledge I need to navigate this current phase of life and the one that's right up in front of me? And so that might mean going back and sort of revisiting, well, what, what, what do I need to know that's going to help me feel more confident? So practicing and then filling that knowledge bank with more information is going to help you be more confident and hopefully decrease anxiety.
0: So it's, the same kinds of things we've been learning here at mighty parenting it's having conversations with our kids and turning them to them and going hey you're getting older you're doing more on your own i love seeing you building your own life and i realize that i've kind of been the keeper of the box here on this so i'd like to start talking to you about more of this information and logistics and maybe we can explore how to handle some of the new social situations you'll be going through. And so hey, you know, can we talk about this? Are there things that you know specifically you want to talk about? Is that kind of an avenue for us to go?
1: Absolutely, you know, and and I would encourage them to also think about teaching their their friends and peers hopefully by that age some of their close friends and peers understand their their allergy and understand what to do in, in a, a you know an anaphylactic reaction or a reaction situation, but if they haven't, that might also be something you can suggest and say, "Look." doesn't have to be me as your caregiver and parent teaching your friends. Maybe you just, you know, informally teach your friends, hey, guys, this is where I keep my epinephrine auto-injector, and these are the symptoms I might have, and, you know, if I need help, this is what you do, and then you call 911. That might be another way to sort of encourage them to feel a little bit more in control and, you know, steering this ship. Um, and then also this idea of shared decision making, taking it one step further. It's not just shared decision making between the caregivers and parents and the teen, but get the doctor involved. The doctor's always involved, the board certified allergist, but saying to your teen, hey, you know, if you've got questions about things, Let's set up an appointment where you can go and ask the doctor the questions yourself. Um, On top of that, if you're in a power struggle, which, of course, we always try to avoid. uh, But if you're in a power struggle with your teenager about specific facts related to food allergies or what's needed to safely navigate it, maybe they're pushing back on, no, I don't need to do this or I don't need to do that. Make an appointment to go see the doctor and talk about it with the doctor. The doctor will give them facts and it takes you as a parent out of that emotional situation. And maybe in talking with the doctor, they'll get a different perspective and go, okay, I see what you're saying, versus it being the parent giving that information.
0: That is always a good thing, right? In any yeah. any close relationship to just get that outside third party in there. Well, I just want to go back and and kind of uh, touch on a couple of things that we talked about today that you shared with us. So, one is living with food allergies is more than just vigilance and logistics; that there is also an emotional and psychosocial impact there. So we need to be aware of that as parents, and um, as a as a friend or a family member who knows someone with food allergies, or who is inviting guests into our home who have food allergies. What we can do to help with that is to just be open. Number one, make them part of our life. Don't go, oh, they have food allergies. We can't have them over for dinner. Yeah. Contact them, ask them questions, even just say, hey, I'd love to have you over for dinner and I have no idea how to go about this. Help me figure out how to do this safely and fun.
1: Absolutely, yep.
0: Okay, and the isolation tends to come from one of two things, either fear or lack of support. So we want to deal with both of those things. And the um, the parents' fears, we can help to minimize those by working with our kids and teaching them and slowly letting them take the reins. And yes, we can allow them to actually make mistakes and see that as a teaching moment for how to handle an emergency. And Absolutely. then we have a couple techniques we went over, which I will link to in the notes because I don't want to spend another 10 minutes <laughs> reviewing how to do the techniques. But I love that. And and I yeah. love the framework that you've given us. So Tamara, would you please share your website for anyone else who wants to learn more from you?
1: Absolutely. So um, I've created a resource website called food allergy counselor. So it's www.foodallergycounselor.com That is a separate website to my clinical practice. But on that website, there's a couple of resources that families might find uh, helpful, even uh, teenagers as well. Um, Number one, there's the food allergy counselor directory. So um, I make it a point to network and connect with other licensed clinical behavioral health care providers who are allergy informed in states across the U.S. Canada, and even abroad, we have one listed in Australia currently, um, and have them listed so that if somebody's looking for an allergy-informed clinician in their area or their state, they can more easily identify and locate them. On top of that, there's a blog, and so myself and other clinicians will often write blog pieces on a variety of topics, including some of the stuff we talked about today, um and then on top of that there's a resource page that i'm constantly updating with links to information that are that are useful so it could be research it could be articles it could be um anxiety management tools, all of the above, and then some. Um, and so that all can be found on www.foodallergycounselor.com. Um, and additionally, um, I'm creating some content, behavioral health food allergy-focused content for the community on uh, the Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Connection Team website. So their acronym is FACT, F-A-A-C-T, and their website is www foodallergyawareness.org. There's a whole behavioral health section and um, it's, it's pretty new. So we're going to keep adding tons more content to it. So that's another good place as well that they can find it. I can also give you a list of other websites where people can find information as well that you can list.
0: Okay. Well, we'll put those in the show notes as well at mightyparenting.com. So that's great. And in any podcast player that you're listening, If you just click on the link that says there are more detailed show notes, it'll take you right to that page. Thank you so much, Tamara, for joining us and for so much great information and support today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me to talk about this very important topic.
0: Mighty parents, thank you for being here. If you like the podcast, then please rate, review, and share it. And of course, remember to visit mightyparenting.com. Grab your free email series on how to talk to your teen, some mighty parenting gear, and more. And thank you for joining us today and for being part of the mighty parenting community. Remember that you are a mighty parent and you got this. I will see you next week.